0: Joshua, let's get into Joshua. Chapter three, if you're not already there. Joshua chapter three. Verse one. Joshua 3, verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they crossed there, or they lodged there before they crossed. At the end of three days, the the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. I like that. Go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priest, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. Now the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall, moreover, command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters, edge of the Jordan, or the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand. In the Jordan, your Bibles may say you shall stand still. Literally, it means you shall stand in position in the Jordan. And then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, come here and hear the word of the Lord your God. Joshua said, by this, you shall know that the living God is among you. And that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then, take for yourselves twelve men from each of the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. It shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, Rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off. The waters which are flowing down from above will stand up in one heap. So, when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan, and the feet of the priest carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap, a great distance away at Adam, the city that is by Zeraton. And those which were flowing down toward the sea of the Arab of the Salt Sea were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. True story. True story. That's history, folks. This is something that took place 3,500, 3,000 years ago, in between there. True story of Joshua and the children of Israel, the sons of Israel crossing into Jerusalem the promised land. Father, when we cross into promise, everything changes. And I pray for that comprehension, that revelation this morning. And I pray that from the text of history, you will teach us, Lord, how we are to live today. You will bring application that awakens our hearts and alerts us to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know if you noticed, we sang about two things this morning. All to the glory of God, all for the glory of God, songs of praise, but we sang about conquering. Our champion who conquers, who fights before us, who wins all the battles. And we also sang, I am who you say I am. I am who you say I am. We sang of identity. Identity has always mattered, to us human beings, although I've never seen people more confused than they are today. I want to read you a little something, and I just ran across this yesterday afternoon and thought I, I have to share that. It's fascinating because it is a global situation. This is not just a culture war that we may be involved in. It's not just issues in America that Americans are facing. This is global. This is worldwide, and out of Israel, from World Israel News, comes this headline, Transgender boy must be placed in girls' class, rabbi's urge, rejecting, quote, artificial changes. Let me read it to you. Amidst an uproar in the central Israeli city of Gavat Shmuel over acceptance of an eight-year-old transgender boy in a religious elementary school, 17 leading religious Zionist rabbis wrote a letter to the education ministry urging that the child be placed in an all-girls class because he, she is a girl biologically. But as an eight-year-old has made the decision or has been, I think, guided to make the decision to be transgender, to dress and act as a boy. Uh, From grades four and up, boys and girls attending national religious public school are separated by gender. That's how they're taught. That's how they're trained in Israel. If you're a boy, you're in the boys' class. If If you're a girl, you're in the girls' class. Well, last week on Friday, a group of parents protested the school's initial decision to place the child who was born a female but now identifies as male in a boys' only class. They were reportedly outraged that they had not been informed of this change in advance. According to one parent, why does my child need to know at such a young age that there are things like this in the world? He added that discovering that your friend is not what you thought could shake up their world. In their letter, the rabbis referred to the child as a girl, rejecting what they termed artificial changes in sex. The girl must be placed in a girl's class. We must be careful not to hurt her feelings and to be patient with her, they stated. But halakha, which is Jewish law, does not recognize artificial changes and actually forbids such behavior. Boys may not even dress as girls, and girls may not dress as boys, therefore this girl must join a girl's class. The role of a religious school is to teach the halakha and ensure that students act in accordance." School administration, they added, must be careful not to wound this girl. I appreciate that attitude, by the way. One must help her with patience to recognize the identity in which she was created. Imagination does not change reality. And she should be helped to accept the wonders of creation and the fact that God created her as a girl and with the privilege of growing up to be a woman and a mother. And some would hear that and say, that is so archaic so old-fashioned. How can you say such a thing? Well, they do because Jewish law, the halakha, says such a thing. And by the way, so does the Bible. The Association for LGBTQ Equality in Israel said that the rabbi's actions were endangering the child's mental health, which could, quote, lead to a loss of life in total opposition to professional and medical authorities in Israel and around the world, the Times of Israel reported. I wonder which authority at the end of the day we will listen to, the medical authority or the biblical authority? And I'm just asking the question, that choice is yours. I've made my choice. Israel National News reported that the rabbis said they would have preferred to settle the matter privately with the school and the child's family, but since the problem is now in the public domain, there's no way to avoid addressing it in an authorized public way. So, interesting that that came out when I had already set down that identity has always mattered to us as humans. That I intended to begin this morning discussing identity You know what's amazing to me, and I mean this with all seriousness, animals don't struggle with identity. I've never seen a one struggle with identity. Dogs never wonder if they might really be cats. (laughs) Birds don't wish they were fish. Elephants don't long to be crocodiles. Animals simply are as they were created to be without question. Now, again, we can laugh, but I'm being very serious here. It is only human beings in all creation that question identity. I want to ask you a question this morning, and I think this is the heart of the whole thing. We talked about this last week at the roundtable, gender identity and and identity. We had a lot of discussion and and debate and questions. I know some of you left the roundtable last week going, man, I want more answers. Well, that's why we opened the discussion. Last week wasn't an end-all lecture series on how to deal with this. It was, let's start talking about it, and as a group of followers of Jesus, let's know who we are and how we are to respond in this world. How we respond with grace and truth, with, with love and reality. And so as we had that discussion, of course, this has been on my mind, but here's the, here's the real issue. Here's the bottom line for the whole thing, if you're curious as to how we should be. And the question is, do you identify with who you were created to be? Do you identify with who you were created to be? Not how you feel, but who you were created to be. I can ask it another way. Do you identify with your creator? Because at the very beginning, Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. And lest any of my sisters wonder, okay, but what about us? It says, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So the created image of God himself is absolutely and clearly male and female. And by the way, Jesus affirmed that in Matthew 19 and other places. Have you not heard that from the beginning it was said, God created them male and female, Jesus said? That's the way it is. Our identity, our created identity in the image of God is male and female. It's not either or, okay? And if you were created female, that is your created identity. You can say, but I feel different. I understand that. And many people in our world right now are confused and have feelings that would would alter their view of themselves. But if you were created female, according to God's word, you are female. All feelings aside, if you were created male, you are female male we were made we were created in the image of God male and female and by the way that is an infinite identity it's an eternal identity it is not a temporary identity isn't it interesting now that with gender fluidity someone can change their identity from day to day Today I identify as this, tomorrow I might identify as something else, but the eternal infinite identity of humankind is we have been created in the image of God, male and female. And that wasn't written to argue or defend a position. That was written because it's true. Because that's the foundation of our very existence. So again, as we open up Joshua 3, and you may wonder, what does this have to do with it? Listen to me. How do you identify? Do you identify with your creator God? Anything less, and you're selling yourself short. You're settling for a downgrade. You're settling for less than you were created to be which at heart is the real issue. I could come out and say I identify as female and I am settling for less than how God made me. I could say I identify as a cat, and by the way, some have. And I am settling, cat lovers, all apologies, but I'm settling for much less than God created me to be. How do you identify? The book of Yehoshua, Joshua, This is a story, as we opened it up last week, the story of Israel coming into their God-ordained identity, who they are as the people of God. It's their rite of passage, right? Through which they were to leave behind the old identity of Abrahamic itinerancy and Egyptian bondage and even wilderness discipleship. And now they are to take hold of a new identity to cross over the Jordan and come into the promised land that they would be the chosen people of God, people of the promise. And that remains God's desire for us today, to own that identity, to bring created man and woman into the promise over and across a river, as it were, a river that is impassable by flesh, impassable by human desire, impassable by feeling. We are to cross over a river by supernatural means into Christ-likeness. Romans chapter eight, verse 29 says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And Calvinists don't misunderstand that. He doesn't say you were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. What does that mean? He knew you would choose him. He knew you would embrace that identity. And so the Lord says, knowing you embrace this identity, I will predestine you in your choice, which is how it's both free will and predestination at the same time. He foreknew your decision. He predestined you to what? To become conformed to the image of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God's very nature, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. You could say, Jesus is the perfect man. Therefore, Jesus being the perfect man, if I am created in the image of God, if male and female we are created in his image, and Jesus is the perfect image, then we are called to Christ-likeness, to be like Jesus. There is no other image with which or in whom we can identify that will fulfill our deepest longings, our most intense desires. Nothing else will satisfy our created purpose, which, by the way, is the work of Christ in you. Have I lost anyone this morning? Because I really hope you're with me on this, that our very identity is wrapped up in our createdness by God, and it moves into complete satisfaction as we receive the promise and cross into Christ-likeness. That's what we were made to be, and that is a life-changing reality. It's the work of Christ in you. Colossians 1, Paul says, it's the mystery which has been hidden from the ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory, identity, and hope, even unto glory, And the good news is, Paul says in Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So he's at work in you and in me right now. You know what? I don't always feel that. And that's a good thing. I woke up a little wonky this morning, to be honest. I didn't feel great. It was one of those days where as my, lids, barely cracked open to see that 5.30 on the clock and just went, oh. And I identified with sleep. <laughs> and I got here, and I was a little tired and we went through the worship and some songs weren't working and we changed it around and, and, and even during worship I was like, I don't have the energy right now, I don't know why, I think I'm just, you know, I'm, well I turned 58 this week, that's why. That's why. (laughs) Well, thanks. I didn't do anything. I just showed up. But appreciate that. I did not, I'm just being brutally honest here. I didn't feel like coming to church today. Did you? Could every hand go up and go, Man, I woke up, rolled out of bed, and went, Yes, Sunday morning. Now, some of you did. The wacky ones. I'm I'm assuming many of you did, and I love being here, and it's not a matter of even trying to decide. I mean, (laughs) there are days where it's good that it's my job, though, I can tell you, because I don't have the luxury of just staying home. So feelings are one thing. My point is this, feelings are one thing, but feelings don't matter. When the reality is Christ in you, Christ in me, and Jesus is perfecting us, whether we feel it or not, On the days when I do not feel righteous and holy, he's at work. He's doing the perfecting work. And what's awesome to me is when I tune back into that, when I stop with the feelings, oh, my feelings are this, and I look at the reality, I am lifted up to the truth that I am created in the image of God and I am being formed after the image of Christ. Wow. Wow. Israel is coming into the land of promise. And remember, Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 10, in fact, we're going to go back there in a little bit. He told us that Israel is the picture for us. So that as we look at this historical account that we just read through and consider what happened in history as actual fact and as a truism, and it's a remarkable story, we see something else. It applies to you and me. That today I read this and say, this is my story too. They are a picture and type of the great work of God moving us into Christ-likeness. But to enter the land, they had to cross a river. Verse one, let's walk it through slowly. Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim, which means the Acacia Grove, from Shittim, and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. I love how this chapter starts. Joshua rose early in the morning, the morning. Of course, this after I just told you, I didn't feel like rising early in the morning. But you know what? There was another Yehoshua who rose early in the mornings. Mark 1:35 says, In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. John chapter 8, verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. See, that encourages me for first service. Jesus taught early in the morning too, so okay. Mark chapter 16, verse two tells us very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. You know what? Good things happen early in the morning. Whether I feel like it or not, good things happen early in the morning. Lamentations three twenty two says, "The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease; His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is Your faithfulness. Yesterday was a terrible day. Hey, today is a brand new day, and mercy and loving kindness, the grace of God, is new this morning. We're ready for you this morning." Now, Joshua's early morning actually began three days of preparation. He rose early in the morning, and they lodged. And there were three days before this early morning and the, and the crossing of the Jordan, three days, and we saw this midweek, these were three days of preparation Joshua chapter one, verse 11, prepare provisions for yourselves for within three days you are to cross this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess it. And so now it's morning, the first of the three days. Three days to prepare. And Wednesday night, we talked about why. Part of the reason was separation as the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh who had decided they wanted to stay on the eastern shores of the Jordan and not cross over, They were having discussions with Joshua during the three days about that separation and about their promise to Moses 38 years before that they would cross and they would fight, that they would go with the children of Israel. And so now they're reaffirming that guarantee, we're going to fight, and Reuben Gad and half Manasseh would go first. They would cross first. They would fight first. They would be the point of the spear as the Israelites come into Canaan's land. So it was separation. Sadly, Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh, their men would go fight. Women and children and and oxen and beasts and cattle and all that. The sheep would stay on the eastern shores. The men would go fight, and then they would backtrack and go back across the Jordan to their homes. So separation was one of the things that needed to be discussed in this three days of preparation. Secondly, salvation. And we saw this wonderful story Wednesday night that Rahab the harlot lied to protect the two spies of Israel. By the way, the last 20 minutes got cut off on the live stream. If you were watching it, all of a sudden it just stopped and you went, and then you're shouting curses at my name and all kinds of things. So the next morning I went in and, and, and recorded the last 20 minutes. So that's up on YouTube if you'd like to follow up with that. And, get the, and what's kind of funny is I can see how many people have watched. And the number of people who watched all the way to where it stopped on Wednesday night is very different than the number of people who have watched the last 20 minutes. There's a bunch of you have no idea how this ends. <laughs> So it's there for you to to watch. But it's salvation, the salvation of Rahab. Let me give you the kicker on this, the punchline of that whole study. In a stunning display of grace, this harlot who lied, yes, to protect the sons of Israel, but it was still a lie. She and her family are saved by faith. And we realize in the story, it wasn't her behavior that was justified. Rahab herself was justified. That is a huge revelation. God doesn't seek to justify all your behavior because every now and then our behavior is unjust. My behavior may at times be unjust, but I have been justified by the blood of Jesus. That's awesome. So it was separation of Reuben, Gad, half Manasseh, salvation for Rahab and her family, the third act of preparation. And it's where we land at the beginning of this morning's story is sanctification. Sanctification, and now this affects all the people of Israel. Verse 2, at the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way in which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. And then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. This is so important, and we briefly touched on this midweek. They had to be consecrated before crossing. And it's a picture for us to understand God desires sanctification before the supernatural. That he longs for, wants for holiness before he offers heavenly help. Now that doesn't mean he won't help or doesn't help or doesn't step in into the affairs of humanity. But he calls us to holiness. If you want to see the work of God in your life. If you want to invite the work of God into your life, it will not be by going your own way. It will be through consecration. Sanctification. The word sanctify yourself, the phrase there is hit kadasu and it means make yourselves holy. Joshua says we're going to see some wonders tomorrow but you need to be holy to see the wonders. Set apart. Make yourselves holy. Set apart to God's Image, God's purpose the identity that he has for you and for me is a holy identity it is not a worldly identity and when I hear people say well I've never seen the work of God in my life I gotta be honest sometimes my mind goes well maybe you need to take a look at your life maybe your life is the problem not that you don't believe in Jesus but if you're not pursuing righteousness, and holiness, and sanctification, if you're not at least seeking to be pursuing that, then why would you think God's going to show up and do amazing things? Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you will see God do wonderful things before he moves in you, before this happens, he wants to, before he moves for you, he wants to move in you consecrate yourselves Leviticus 1144 I am the Lord your God consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy why lord because I am holy and remember where I, our identity comes from made in the image of God he's this way he wants us to be this way and when we are we are satisfied and when we are that's where fulfillment comes in our lives he says, you shall not make yourselves unclean. This is Leviticus eleven 44. Don't make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you say, Great for Israel, Peter commandeered that. 1 Peter 1:15 and said, Like the holy one who called you, be holy yourselves also in all behavior because it is written you shall be holy for I am holy you realize the book of revelation concludes with this among other things revelation 22:11 john writes let the one who does wrong still do wrong and the one who is filthy still be filthy and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. At the conclusion of the great revelation of Jesus Christ, John's word is, be who you are. Choose your side. Choose the world in filthiness. And if you choose that, embrace it wholeheartedly. Or choose to be holy. But don't play the game, the back and forth. Consecrate yourselves, for you're going to see something wonderful. Do you want to cross the river wild? It begins with a holy identity, which, by the way, in and of itself, it develops my true spiritual nature, the pursuit of holiness. Well, verse 6. And Joshua spoke to the priest, saying, take up the Ark of the Covenant, cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant, and they went ahead of the people. Now the Lord said, and by the way, the word said there, that's in the imperfect, which can mean past tense. It's kind of a a fluid tense. And what really I think it ought to translate is, the Lord had said to Joshua. So you're getting kind of a back and forth through the chapter as Joshua tells the priest, take the Ark and go. Well, why did he tell him that? Because verse seven tells us the Lord had said, or the Lord said to Joshua, this day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall moreover command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant saying, when you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. In other words, Joshua says to the priests, walk out into the Jordan and make your stand holding the ark, stand in the river. Let me tell you something about the River Jordan. Maybe a little background to understand what's going on here and what really took place. Some of you have been to Israel and you've seen the River Jordan. I remember the first time I saw the River Jordan crossing crossing a little bridge up in the north on our tour bus and realized as we went across the bridge that our bus was wider than the Jordan River. Are you kidding me? This is the Jordan? Talk about a major letdown. Jordan River, I'm bound to cross. We're over it. (laughs) That's it. Now it's wider in other places today, but it's not very wide. It's formed by three streams. Three streams. And and it it descends from the north. It's called the Yarden. Yarden in Hebrew, which means descender or descending one, it's formed by three streams at the very headwaters. It's the Dan and the Banias and the Hasbani. These three come together and they form the Jordan River that then begins to descend. It flows to the south. It begins up at the ruins, by the way, of a very interesting location in the Bible, a Roman city known as Caesarea Philippi. So the river finds finds its source in the very place where Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's interesting to me. It flows 160 miles from its headwaters all the way in the far north down to the, well, to the dead waters of the far south, the Dead Sea. So flowing down, it flows into the Sea of Galilee. It comes into the north of the Sea of Galilee flows into that sea and then pours out from the south end of the Sea of Galilee and continues its way all the way down, finally to meeting up in the Dead Sea where it stops and it dies in that salt sea. It's interesting that the entire river sits below sea level because it's in the middle of what's called the Syrio-African Rift Valley, which is a long valley that runs even north of Israel through Israel all the way down. And this Syro-African Rift Valley, it's also called the Jordan Rift Valley. This valley has great significance, especially in days to come. It has an infamous future. Revelation 14, 19 tells us the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. That's the Jordan Rift Valley. That's where Armageddon takes place. It's where final judgment takes place called the Valley of Yehoshaphat. That valley, by the way, runs right through Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, it's a little smaller. It's called the Kadron Valley and runs then all the way down to the south. And it is a distance of 200 miles. But the river itself, the Jordan, runs and then goes a little to the right of the, or the left of the Kadron, east of the Kadron, and continues on down. It's 160 miles long. The current of the Jordan is very strong. Even even today, as small as it is, as narrow as it is in many places, is a strong current because it drops at an average of nine feet per mile. So dropping from the north down to the south, it is continually going down. But as it rushes out of the Sea of Galilee, it drops as much as 40 feet per mile. So it's got quite a current rushing through it. But the river is very different today than it used to be. And you can cross it on a bus over a little bridge in the north and wonder, really, that's it? That's the mighty Jordan. Well, it's changed. And if you go out and look at the Skagit River today, the Skagit is wider in most places than the Jordan River is, except where we do baptizing. When we do baptizing, it's about the same distance, perhaps, across as the Skagit River. But population growth and water regulations and farmland irrigation, all of this in the modern nation of Israel especially has shrunk the Jordan down to really a shadow of its former self. And you need to understand that looking at this because this is a supernatural event. This is a miraculous work. They're not standing on a little creek bed going, well, just walk across for crying out loud. You can't get water up to your kneecaps? What's the problem, Israel? It was a wide river. In fact, the normal width of the Jordan would be about the width of our sanctuary. At flood stage, the Jordan it has what they call the flood plains around it and the deep Jordan would be about a mile wide. A mile wide rushing and gushing as an absolute torrent. And by the way, guess what time of year it is for Joshua and the people? Flood stage. So they're standing at the edge of the Jordan at flood stage. I love how God does this. He really sets himself up for failure. You know, let's not just part the seas of the Jordan, say when it's, you know, at its lowest. Let's wait for flood stage. And then we'll tell them to cross then. So what Joshua and the people would be looking across was a mile long raging torrent. One commentator wrote, the river's floodplain was 200 yards to a mile wide And was packed with tangled brush and jungle undergrowth. This means that the river Israel faced that springtime was no placid stream, but a raging torrent a mile wide covering a mass of tangled brush and growth. And we're told in verse 15, if you skip down and look at the last part of the verse, the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of the harvest. This is flood stage. This is springtime. This is the time of harvest. And the Jordan is raging. Verse nine. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, by this you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Hivite and the Perizzite and the Girgashite and the Amorite and the Jebusite. And you can't add in the terabytes and the flyby nights and the overbites <laughs> because there were only seven nations. And you gotta be clear on that. Seven nations that are listed here that Israel was to go in and dispossess, but biblical note the word dispossess is probably better translated destroy i want you to go destroy seven nations god's intention was a complete and utter annihilation extermination of seven nations and so some question the character of a god who could do such a thing they say, the God of the Old Testament, that's why I have a problem with you Christians, is that God of the Old Testament, like Jesus, let me just you know, clarify for you, same God, same God. And when Jesus returns, read it in Revelation 19, he returns with eyes of fire and a sword coming out of his mouth, ready to make war. That's Jesus. So don't be confused by this one and the same God. But how could God do this? How could he destroy human life just to hand it over to his chosen people? What's ironic to me, and I'm just gonna say this as an aside, many of those who question God's compassion take a hardline pro-abortion stance, and I don't understand that. Talking out of both sides of your mouth. But let's answer the question. How could God send Israel in to destroy all these people, cross the Jordan to do this? First of all, God made life, right? If we take the biblical understanding and we get that God created all living things, does he not have the right to remove it if he deems it necessary? Isn't the world and all the universe, isn't it his to do with as he pleases? I'm just, I mean, is there another way to look at this? No, he doesn't have the right. He's the only one who has the right because he made it all. Isaiah 64, verse eight says, "O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. And all of us are the work of your hand. How dare he take away life? Well, he's the one who gave it. Paul says in Romans nine, verse 20, quoting from Isaiah, he says, who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay? Talk about identity. Doesn't God have the right to do with his creation as he pleases? But even with that right, you Bible students know the second thing to note here is that God gave a four-century reprieve to Canaan. This was not turning on a dime. This was not one day he just thought, I want to wipe some people out. Let's take them out. The warning came down four centuries before. And while the Bible largely gives us the history of Israel, we don't know what the history was in Canaan. We aren't aware of the prophets perhaps sent to Canaan. We know later prophets would be sent to the pagans, even as Jonah was sent to Nineveh to save the Ninevites. Weird. But 400 years earlier, God said to Abraham, Genesis 15, 16, in the fourth generation, 400 years, they, that is your descendants Israel, will return here. Why? Why wait 400 years? Why not just do it with Abraham right then and there? Because God says, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And that's the key. God's mercy Get this, please hear this. God's mercy is so great. His judgment will not fall until sin is full. He gives us to the very end of ourselves. Why hasn't Jesus returned to this world at this time? He's given us to the end of the age. He's giving this world to the end of itself. He will not return until... Sin is full. So if you're looking around going, sin looks pretty full to me. Well, God is so patient. He waits and he waits and he waits and he waits until sin is, the word is complete. The word is shalem. So you could say, until the sin is shalem. But shalem means whole. It means finished. Full. They had 400 plus years to repent, to empty out their sin. Instead, All the Canaanites, all seven nations went the other way. And we know what was going on in Canaan when Israel was told to go and put the land out of its misery. We know what was happening. The land was full of theft, murder, gross sexual immorality, brutality, especially against women. Tribal warfare, child sacrifice was a common occurrence. It was a corrupt, depraved, evil land. God said, I'm giving you 400 years. And at the end of the 400 years, their sin was full. And by the way, if the people were so evil, what was going on spiritually in the land of Canaan at this time? See, we we think on such a physical level, If their sin was so thick in Canaan's land, then we can recognize that God's judgment was far more than against human beings. Ephesians 6.12 says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3 says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And even as Israel physically comes into the land and physically will take out these nations, these sin, sick, brutal nations, so the evil that is filling all the land is pushed out. And that is so important. We're gonna talk more about that as we journey further into this book, especially the battling. We're gonna have a whole teaching on spiritual warfare and how to deal with it from a Joshua perspective. But there is one more reason that he calls for the eradication of the Canaanites, and it's related to this. God needed to sanctify the land. The land needed sanctification, why? Because something else had to happen there. A Jewish son needed to be born in Bethlehem, in the land. This Jewish son would grow into a Jewish man and he would die on Calvary. He would rise from the dead and triumphantly ascend from the Mount of Olives to this land. He would then turn around and send his Holy Spirit at Pentecost to bring the message of the salvation of Yahweh, Yehoshua, The salvation of Yahweh, the gospel message to the world. The land needed to be sanctified so that Jesus could come into it. This is all purposeful. And that's why, by the way, the Ark of the Covenant was the focal point of the Jordan River crossing. Look again back, or look at verse 11. We haven't looked at it yet. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. The Ark is mentioned 10 times In Joshua chapter three, the ark with the mercy seat resting on top of it. The ark was the picture for the Jewish people of the very presence of God. That As they crossed the Jordan, they would look and they would be aware of God's presence. God is here. God is doing this. God is the focus. And by the way, in verse four, it's interesting that the people were told to keep their distance 2,000 cubits, which is 3,000 feet, a little over half a mile. They needed to stay back from the Ark of the Covenant. Oh yeah, because if they got too close, zap. Well, that's not what it says. They needed to stay back from it. Why? So that everyone could see it clearly as they crossed. Everyone could see it. Note that he says, do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go. It is the the landmark for them, crossing the Jordan, there's the ark, okay, we can keep our, okay, as we do this and we're heading this way. So it was to guide them, it was to lead them, it was the very picture of the presence of God, which is why we need the Holy Spirit today, so that we can see the way which we are going. Another way to put this, when he says, keep your distance from it, is give God room to work. Give him space to do his thing. Allow him time with patience to do what he decides to do. It's amazing to me, even in the church, that some people get all up in God's face and they lose reverence and honor and respect for holiness, for who he is. He is a perfect and righteous God and we should fall on our faces and when we don't, we lose our way. Maybe we get caught up in the Jordan itself and wander off or don't make it across. We need to have eyes on the Spirit. So the ark of the Lord was to be held steadfast where everyone could see it so that all could know the way to go. Yesterday, we're in the car coming back from a soccer game and Chris goes, Dad, what do people mean when they say follow your heart? And I said, Well, Chris, first of all, it means they're stupid. This is the kind of deep spiritual instruction that I offer my son at home. What does it mean when someone says, follow your heart? And it says, and I said, Chris, it means they're saying, follow how you feel. Follow how you feel. And he goes, oh, okay. And I said, no, not okay. Because if you follow your heart, it's gonna lead you into your chest, and that's about it. If you follow your heart, you're following your feelings, you're following your intuition, you're following your instincts, and that is not the Lord. Don't follow your heart, son, follow Jesus. Follow him. He is the way to go. He is the way to the Father. No one comes to the Father but through him. And so it's his great mercy. Like the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, mercy leads into the promise. His mercy leads us into promise. Verse 12. Now then take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe, And it shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off and the waters which are flowing down from above will stand in one heap. Why 12 men? I'll tell you on Wednesday night. But listen, before the miracle happens, before it all takes place, it's proclaimed. It's described. Here's what's gonna happen. So that when it does happen, they can say, oh, it really is God. He says ahead of time, and then he does it. That's the entire Bible, by the way. That's prophecy. God speaks it, and then he does it. So that when it happens, we can say, oh, he said he was gonna do this. This is the Lord. Verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the Lord... And when those who carried the ark came into the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows its banks all the days of harvest, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap, a great distance away at Adam, the city which is beside Zeratan, and those which were flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, that's the Dead Sea, were completely cut off, so the people crossed opposite Jericho. What do you think the people of Jericho were witnessing on that day? They're already melting in their hearts. They're already shaking in their sandals at the advent of the people of Israel coming into the land. And they see this? Wow. Joshua chapter five, verse one, indicates that all the Canaanites recognized this stoppage it's not even a parting we see the parting of the Jordan it wasn't a parting the waters didn't part one side or the other that was the Red Sea the water stopped and the people walked across immediately on dry ground and I can tell you that is impossible because I've stood in the Jordan River doing baptisms and sunk to my ankles in the thick mud If you were to dry up that water, it would take a bit for that mud to dry up, but they're out there. They step out there. The ground is dry. The waters are piled up. This is a supernatural event, and Joshua 5.1 tells us that even the Canaanites recognized this as a supernatural feat of Yahweh God. Israel's part was simply dipping their feet in the river wild by faith. Now, the risk of fording the Jordan at flood stage was obvious. They could be washed away and drowned. The priests, uh, you know, I wouldn't have minded so much being the priest at the back of the ark, but the ones at the front who had to actually walk in and all the priests had to be in the river before it stopped up. That took some faith. That took for the first time as a group of people, them saying, all right. See, this is very different than the Red Sea, very different. The Red Sea, the seas parted and they crossed. In the Jordan, they had to go in before the water stopped. But listen to me, when trust is in the Lord, the promise always outweighs the risk. When my faith is in Jesus, the promise outweighs the risk. That, for the most part, is a story, but I want to now go back to our paradigm shift in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, where Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, that's the Shekinah glory of God, and all passed through the sea, talking about the Red Sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They were immersed in the presence of God, submerged by his supernatural power as they followed him. All ate the same spiritual food, the manna, all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock. Remember the water from the rock which followed them? And the rock, Paul says, was Christ. He was there. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Verse 11, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. How much more for you and me today than even for Paul writing it 2,000 years ago? How much more do we need to recognize what this example really speaks to us, what it really means? And I said to you last week, Canaan is not heaven. It is a wrong theology to look at Canaan's land as a picture of heaven because you go into Canaan's land and you still have to take possession of the promises and you still have battles to fight and, and skirmishes and wars. That's not heaven. But it is the Christian life. It is our life now, where we as a people come into the promises of God, the promise of God by faith in Jesus Christ, the promise of salvation. And as our sanctification now is underway, we are still fighting battles. We fight in the promised land, good news, but we fight nonetheless. It's a picture, Canaan, a picture of victorious Christian living right now. That's the book of Joshua for us And yes, remember, the kingdom is coming, but it is not yet. It is not here. Citizens of the kingdom, yes, but the kingdom has not yet arrived. Jesus will bring that. But we are in Canaan. We are in the promised land at this point. But listen to me. Some of you are gonna disagree with me, and that's okay. That's all right. I have many friends who don't agree with me and are wrong, and I love them anyway. (laughs) (laughs) If the Red Sea is a picture of baptism, water baptism. And if the wilderness, as we talked about last week, is a picture really of Romans 7 living, Romans 7, wretched man that I am, All the things I want to do, I don't do. And and Christians who, who say that and talk that way and act that way, live that way, I want to do the right thing, but I just don't. But then I try to do the right thing and I still don't. But then I repent again and I'm doing the wrong thing all over again. And has that been the pattern of any of your lives? I've experienced that. That is not victorious living, that's wilderness living. That's back and forth living. That's living to the next date of repentance. That's showing up at the confessional, man. And then going right back to the old life. That's wilderness living. That's Romans 7 living. Romans 8 living is there is therefore now no no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Victory. For the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's victory. That's Canaan's land. That's the promise. But if the Red Sea is baptism... And the wilderness is that struggle to come into our identity as victorious believers. What does the Jordan River represent? What would the Jordan River be a picture of? And I submit to you, it's a picture of a second baptism. A second baptism. And this is where some go, okay, all right. I know where you're going with this. Remember this, that Jordan, Yarden in the Hebrew, means the descending one. Because it descends from north to south. The descending one, the Jordan River. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. Where was Jesus baptized, by the way? Jordan. Easy question. Yeah, the Jordan River, right? After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. After being baptized, behold, and the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This was after he was baptized. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus have the Holy Spirit before he was baptized? The answer is yes, he's Jesus. It was the Holy Spirit who came upon Mary and caused her to become pregnant. And then as she gave birth, yes, the Holy Spirit was in Jesus. The Holy Spirit already indwelt Jesus before his water baptism. Now with you and me, the guarantee is that we receive the indwelling Holy Spirit when we're baptized. Now, can you receive the Holy Spirit prior to being baptized? I think you can, and we can have that discussion another time. So I'm not trying to lock us down to one theological position. But I can guarantee you that if you're baptized by faith in Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit does indwell you because Acts 2.38 says it. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is, he comes into you to dwell with you. Jesus already had the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes into the waters of baptism, he comes out, and then the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And note this, John one thirty-one. John the Baptist testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. That's Identity. That is identity. That's where Jesus knew who he was, knew his identity, but that's where the world saw that he was identified with the living God. When the Spirit came upon him, Jesus had the Holy Spirit indwelling before his baptism. Then he got baptized. Then we see the Holy Spirit come upon him. And Luke chapter 4 verse 14 tells us Jesus returned to the Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Note that the Bible doesn't give us a single miracle of Jesus until after the Holy Spirit came upon him. Some extracurricular books. <laughs> Some of the apocrypha, uh, apocrypha tried to claim that Jesus did miracles as a child, but there's no historical evidence of that whatsoever. And I don't think he could have. Why not? Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus emptied himself of power and glory. Jesus, when he was born on the earth, though he had the indwelling Holy Spirit, though he was by very nature God and man, did not have supernatural power. He was just like you and me for 30 years. And then Jesus is baptized. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And suddenly he returns to the Galilee in the power, the Bible says, of the Holy Spirit. That word power is dunamis. Remember that. So now all of a sudden the power, why would God do it that way? so that we would understand our identity, so that we, like Jesus, would understand we will not have the power to do anything except by the Holy Spirit. And I think that we could see that you can have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, be identified with God, be justified, saved, and and loved by God, and yet not be empowered by the Spirit because maybe you never received the Holy Spirit. Like that group of guys that Paul ran into toward the end of the book of Acts, I think it's Acts chapter 19, runs into these guys. And and, and Paul says, hey, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they go, Holy Spirit? We didn't even know there was one. (laughs) Paul goes, well, how were you baptized? Oh, into John's baptism. Oh, so John the Baptist baptized you. And that was a baptism of repentance. That was not a baptism even of receiving the Holy Spirit at all. So what did Paul do? He laid his hands on them and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they all began speaking in tongues, evidencing at least at that point that this had just happened. And then they were baptized. It was completely out of order. (laughs) They received the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and then they got baptized. God can do it however he wants. And the order isn't necessarily what we need to understand as much as the work of God in a person's life. Note this, when Jesus was baptized, that God exalted him. God exalted him. I mean, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 says, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." The Lord exalts Jesus. Note that that he did that with Joshua. This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel. Why? Why is he gonna exalt Joshua? That they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I'm going to exalt you, Joshua, because I want them to know I'm with you in this. I am walking with you. Listen to me. The presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, it it means the recognition that God is with you. There should be a change in you such that there's a recognition that God is with you. Even other people should see that. I'm not talking about flaunting all kinds of power stuff. I'm not talking about going to work tomorrow morning and speaking in tongues. You might lose your job. I'm saying that you have a holy, divine, sanctified identity, and the Holy Spirit who indwells you wants you to walk in that. Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, I know where the argument is, and I've heard it my whole ministry life. I know the argument is, I have the Holy Spirit. Why do I need the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, one is within, one is an indwelling, and the other one is a coming upon, and they are distinct. And we talked about this in John chapters 14, 15, and 16, and John 20. I think we went over this, so this shouldn't be a surprise that I'm sharing this with you, Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John the Baptist says, As for me, I baptize with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And on John, in John 7, 37, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and he said, If anyone's thirsty, Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers, torrents, like the Jordan at flood stage, torrents of living water. And he spoke of the spirit. Is your Christian life, and does it evidence that, at least to you, the the, the presence of the spirit in your life is this torrents of living water? Or is it trickles are you the one who, man, the glass is full, but it's just a full glass? Or have you been dropped right back into the pitcher? Do you remember the example? Where not only is the Spirit in you, but He is around you and upon you, saturated by the Holy Spirit of the living God. Now, don't be offended by the way that I'm calling this teaching the river wild. I know it makes sometimes people uncomfortable when we talk about God or the Spirit as being wild. I'm not saying the Spirit is out of control, but Jesus is the one who used the word torrent when he spoke of the work of the Holy Spirit. Do we see torrents in the church today? Or do we see trickles? And I think part of it is because we've missed the promise. We're still on the eastern banks. We're still looking across the Jordan. We have not passed through that second baptism. The river wild, why? Because the spirit, while not being uncontrollable, the spirit is unpredictable. At least in terms of when and how and where he's gonna lead the born-again person. And and if your thinking is, okay, if I get this baptism of the Holy Spirit, I'm gonna have Holy Spirit glue me to the wall. (laughs) Or I'm gonna be rolling down the aisles or I'm gonna be completely out of control. I'm gonna bark like an animal. Listen, if dogs don't long to be cats, don't long to be a dog. Okay, I'm going to lose control of myself if I have this Holy Spirit baptism thing. We have completely missed in what it means. John chapter three, verse five, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Then he says this about the Holy Spirit. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. You don't know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. I don't know where I'm going, but he does. I don't follow my heart. I'm following him. I'm going where he leads. And that doesn't mean you're gonna move away to the darkest regions of Asia or Africa to try and do mission work. Actually, they need to send some people our way. But I'll tell you what, for my part, the most unexpected torrential events of my life have happened right here, right here. I mean, I had to go anywhere to experience God's completely unpredictable. If you had told me, how old is Honor Marie? 24. If you had told me 24 years ago what my life would look like now, I couldn't have believed that. That wasn't me. That's not where I was headed. That's not what I was going to do. The Holy Spirit's unpredictable. Acts chapter one, let me read this to you. Understand back in Luke chapter 24. Just stay with me a few more minutes here. Acts chapter one, following Luke 24, 49, where Jesus said, behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my father upon you and you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He said this to the apostles, listen to me, who in John 20 had already received the Holy Spirit. And now he says, stay in Jerusalem until you receive power, dunamis, dunamis. It's the same word used of Jesus when he returned to the Galilee in power. It was different. He had the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now he's functioning in the power. Many of us have the indwelling Holy Spirit but are not functioning in the power. And that's that second crossing. That's the Jordan River crossing that I'm talking about. Well, Rick, I don't want to be part of a huddle of people jumping up and down and shouting and speaking in tongues and doing all kinds of things. You don't have to be. Where do we get the notion that that's what it means to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? Do you understand that being baptized with the Holy Spirit comes simply of asking? Luke chapter 11, how much more will the Father give those who ask his Holy Spirit? And the power and the anointing that is necessary for life and for ministry. But but listen to Jesus in Acts chapter 1 verse 4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized, Jesus' words, with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now, he's talking to people who already have the indwelling Spirit, and he says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is this the time you're gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, it's not for you to know times or epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive dunamis, power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. And you know what came next? Jesus ascended. 10 days later, these disciples, again, several of whom already had received the Holy Spirit, John 20, 22, at the feast of Shavuot, Pentecost, they crossed the Jordan figuratively. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Yes, there is a huge difference, multiple differences between the first and second crossings of Israel. When Moses and the people were baptized into the Red Sea, God parted the seas for them. At the Jordan, they had to step out in faith. They had to choose to cross. They had to go in before the supernatural happened. While the waters were still flowing, you could say that the priests had to put themselves into it, heart and soul. The soles of their feet, soul, S-O-L-E, heart and soul. All right. In fact, what's interesting is the actual place the Lord heaped up the waters, Adam by Zeraton, back in Joshua 3, was 12 miles upriver. 12 miles was where he stopped the waters. You know what that means? That means that God stopped the water before they stepped in. But they didn't know. They didn't know. They had to act on faith, but before they acted on faith, God knew they were about to act, knowing they were about to act on faith, stopped the waters that they could cross by faith. God's always moving ahead of us. Every time we think, "Oh, I get it now. God, we can do something." He knew you were about to get it so they could you could do something. He's always ahead of us. They had to take possession of something God had already done by faith. And there's another picture of the Holy Spirit here. As God held back the waters in the Jordan crossing, picture of the Holy Spirit as God, I might say, restrained the waters. Anyone know what the Holy Spirit is referred to as in and through the church in 2 Thessalonians chapter two? The restraining influence. Well, that's interesting too. And we're gonna talk more about that in a later study. But when did all of this take place in Joshua's story? When did it happen? At the harvest. At the same time as Pentecost. That's remarkable to me. These things are not coincidental that the people crossed the Jordan River in the springtime at the same time as the harvest. And the day of Pentecost, Shavuot, is a celebration of the harvest, that feast of weeks. Jesus said in John 4:35, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for the harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps might rejoice or may rejoice together. Joel 2:28 which by the way, Peter's gonna quote in Acts chapter two at Pentecost, Joel says it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams and man, I'm dreaming a lot lately and your young men will see visions even on male and female, note that, male and female. Even on male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those Days. these are people who identify with God and when you're born again you are filled with the spirit so step into your created identity trust God for more than you are that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit it is trusting God for more than I am well that doesn't fit my Baptist theology okay it didn't fit my Church of Christ theology several years ago either I'm not concerned with your theology or mine. I'm concerned with what the scripture teaches us. And what we see in this Jordan River crossing is a marvelous promise of power. Power where we can have this identity in Jesus Christ empowered. The Jordan crossing, the the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we step into that created identity. And now we have power. I've said this many times. It is not power to dance around like a fool. In fact, the Bible says the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. That means you're in control of yourself. But this power, this dunamis, this second baptism of the Holy Spirit, this is power for two reasons, the harvest and the salvation of the lost. Actually, that's the same thing. The harvest is the salvation of the lost and the service of the body of Christ. Salvation and service, harvest and service. And help. You can say it's going after the lost. Power to do that because you know what? Most of us are not empowered to go after the lost. Most of us, when having the opportunity, go, "Wow, look at the time! I, I got to run. I got this thing." Got it. Some some have the gift of evangelism, go right to it. Many of us do not. Many of us kind of shy away. Do I? I'd like to share about Jesus, but you need the power of the Holy Spirit. That's his power that gives you the anointing, the Bible says, to do that. How about caring for each other in this body? If we're gonna rely on our flesh to minister one to another, we're in trouble because our flesh will get in the way every single time. The power, the dunamis of the Holy Spirit, as we cross the Jordan and come into the full experience of the promise of God, now I can minister to you whether I want to or not. Whether I feel like it or not, I minister by the power of the Holy Spirit. I speak Jesus and the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. I left off one verse at the end of Joshua, and we'll stop. Verse 17 says, The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Almost. All the nation did not finish crossing the Jordan. All represented, yes, because there were representatives of Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh. But you know what? Their wives and children stood on the Eastern shore and only watched it happen. They did not go through. That's tragic to me. And those fighting men who went through backtracked when they were done and went back over to the Eastern shore. And by the way, it's gonna cause a big problem as they head back across. And we'll talk about that in a later study as well. Someone might say, Rick, it sounds like you're saying I'm missing out if I don't cross the Jordan, if I don't get baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I would say, you're right, you're missing out. But please hear my heart and hear the word on this. This is not a value judgment. This is not even an identity judgment. Your identity is in Christ, period. But you know what this is? It is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to function more powerfully in the Lord than perhaps you currently do. You cannot get more of his spirit at least in terms of his presence but you can certainly receive I can certainly certainly receive more power for the harvest and to serve cross this jordan cross this jordan stop playing theological games and look at what the bible says and just say god i want all of your promises i want everything you desire for me step out by faith into the river there are some big walls there are some tough battles ahead there are people whose entire identity is bound up in a lie and they need Jesus Christ are you up to that task I'm not but by the power of the Holy Spirit we can still bust down walls and see people like Rahab saved by the gospel of Jesus but to do so we need all the armor and strength and power we can get. Let's pray. Holy Father, I ask you now for this empowering, for the strength to be upon your people. And Lord, I I, I could pray this all I wanted, all day long, that your Holy Spirit, that we would have a baptism of your Holy Spirit right here this morning, would fall on all of us in this fellowship. But Father, it's not gonna fall on anyone unless they desire the power of your Spirit. So for my part, Lord, I am asking spirit of the living God that you would convict our hearts to receive your power your spiritual power your strength strength not to exalt ourselves but strength Lord to see lost people saved and power Lord to minister one to another I'm praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit Lord Jesus for anybody who would ask